From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. On the night of October 4th, 1991, Ludie Mae Tucker, an elderly white woman, and her cousin Mamie Dutton were attacked in their home in Decatur, Alabama. Ludie Mae later died from her wounds, but not before she described her attacker to the police as a stranded motorist who'd come to her door seeking help. After arresting one man and then releasing him, the police became convinced that Rocky Myers, who actually lived across the street with his wife and children, was responsible for the attack. Rocky and his lawyers have maintained his innocence from the moment of his arrest to today. After a brief trial with no forensic evidence linking him to the scene of the crime, a nearly all-white jury convicted Rocky Myers of capital murder. The jury recommended a life sentence, but the judge overruled that decision and imposed the death penalty. Subsequent attempts to exonerate Myers were doomed by irresponsible lawyering and missed deadlines. Now it appears a clemency order from Alabama Governor Kay Ivey is Mr. Myers' last hope. The ACLU published a long-form article on this case on our website and in The Nation magazine. Our guests today are Casey Keaton and Sarah Romano, who've been working together on Rocky Myers' case for over a decade. Casey, a federal public defender, is Rocky's current lawyer, and Sarah has been an investigator on his behalf. Casey and Sarah, thanks very much for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Casey, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your client, Rocky Myers? What was his life like before he was arrested? Rocky grew up, he's one of 10 children born in New Jersey. Uh, His father was a severe alcoholic. There was a lot of abuse growing up in the household until the father kind of left the picture for a period of time. And Rocky was raised a lot by a single mom who didn't have enough money to feed her children a lot of times. He eventually, in school, was put into a special education program where he was separately schooled uh, because of intellectual difficulties that he had. When Rocky moved to Alabama, he was married and had four children, but had also been struggling with a drug addiction problem. They moved to Alabama to kind of separate himself from that, from the environment that he was in. And his wife had family in the Decatur area. And did he have any history of violence? No. And Sarah, maybe can you help me understand how you came to this case? I understand that you came across this case first. I did at the office here where the we have the Capitol Habeas Unit for the federal defenders, and we were newly formed Back in 2003, I believe, Rocky had his attorney drop his case, and he had another person on death row assist him with reading the information that he received from the attorney general's office. They were ready to schedule an execution date for him and told him that if he wanted to file a federal habeas petition, he was going to need to find someone to represent him. At that point... His friend helped him and called Equal Justice Initiative here in Montgomery. EJI called our office and asked us to assist in helping Rocky file a federal habeas petition. And that was in 2004, which we did. So I immediately started working on his case and investigating his case. And just to clarify, what is the role of an investigator in a case like this? 
I'm a licensed clinical social worker and work as an investigator in this office. So what we do is we review all of the client's cases. We investigate everything that happened that resulted in the conviction. We also investigate everything that happened during the sentencing part of the trial. And so after visiting with Rocky in having an understanding that he had some intellectual difficulties. One of my big part in the role of this was to try to find out the information about his learning difficulties. So I met with family members up in New Jersey. I went to the schools up there and tried to get records on Rocky. And so did a really big investigation into his past social history But at the same time, because there were issues with his conviction, we also looked at talking to all the witnesses that testified at court because so many of them changed their stories. And then we found what's called a Brady claim. So we tried to figure that out and do the fact investigation to prove that. Well, I want to come back to the myriad issues with his conviction, but I'm interested in What kind of picture those conversations painted of Rocky Myers? You said you spoke to a lot of folks in his family and that he grew up with. What kind of picture did they paint of Rocky? The picture that they painted of Rocky was a person who was a nice man, a good man. Some of what Casey didn't mention about his upbringing was that he did come from a family very active in their church. There were several people that were gifted musicians and singers. I mean, they actually toured some of the family members as a Christian gospel group. So there was a lot of discussion about his faith and his beliefs, that he was a good man, but also that he did struggle, having trouble learning and understanding and comprehending things. Description would be he was slow, like he was slow in school and couldn't keep up. But then As Casey had mentioned, at some point, because I think of his generational family history with addiction, Rocky became addicted and used drugs. But Rocky never was convicted of anything or involved in anything that had any sort of physical altercations or violence. Well, that's really helpful background both in terms of what your role is and the kind of work that you do, but also understanding a bit more about Mr. Myers. I described the crime that precipitated the case, but I wonder if, Casey, you can walk us through some of the most egregious violations of Mr. Myers' rights. As as I noted, we have published a long-form story that sort of reads as a highlight reel of dysfunction within the Alabama justice system. Casey, can you help us understand the, the most important moments in his trial? One of the first things that Sarah did do once we got the case is investigate and find out about his intellectual disability. And without that information, without that understanding, there was never any real relationship between Rocky and his trial counsel. I think we add a layer of that where race is an issue. And while there's nothing that Rocky would ever say, I think, number one, because of the person that he is, but he would never say that he felt treated inappropriately by his counsel. 
but his counsel came to trial arguing in the opening statements that the place where his client lived was not inhabited by people, that it was inhabited by drug dealers and prostitutes and referred to it as the very pit of hell and created kind of this otherism where the jury was clearly on one side as he continued to apologize to them about having to talk about this place where people didn't live and his client on the other. And that racism in a little small town in Alabama coming from his own lawyer played into a trial that was overseen by a jury of 11 Caucasians and one African-American, where an African-American male is on trial for the murder of an elderly white woman. So race impacts that from the beginning, but also with an attorney who is kind of separated from his client by not really understanding everything that's going on with him. I think those are some of the initial things that caused problems in the trial uh, and moving forward in the case that resulted in a guilty verdict, ultimately. Beyond that, we know that there were witnesses who were not brought to the trial because of failures by trial counsel. We know that Rocky wasn't even the first suspect in this case. There was no forensic evidence. I think they missed some opportunities to raise issues about that lack of forensic evidence. So I think definitely ineffective assistance of counsel at the trial level is one of the major issues. And then later, we know that Rocky also received, I think, something beyond just ineffective assistance of counsel when he proceeded into his state post-conviction case. Can you say a little bit more about what happened with his appellate lawyer? We'll come back to some of the other issues with the trial. Yes, absolutely. Rocky was not appointed counsel, but a counsel volunteered to represent Rocky in his state post-conviction proceedings. His name was Earl Schwartz, and he came to be on Rocky's case because he volunteered with the American Bar Association's Death Penalty Project. He represented Rocky through his appeal post-conviction. But what happened in the midst of that impacted everything that happened in Rocky's case afterward because he quit representing Rocky. He filed the initial appeal brief, but once the Court of Criminal Appeals made a decision denying that appeal, Mr. Schwartz never did anything else. He didn't let anybody know that he was not going to do anything else, but he quit doing anything. And that left Rocky without counsel. And because of that, Rocky failed to meet requirements to file a federal habeas petition. And just to clarify, the federal habeas petition is the mechanism through which he can plead for his exoneration. Correct. So you've highlighted some of the problems with the background issues of race in Alabama with regard to the jury as well as the trial counsel. And then we've just heard about how the appellate counsel left Rocky at a critical juncture in his appellate litigation. 
But I wanted to also turn to another key moment in the trial when the decision was going to the jury about whether to convict and whether to recommend the death penalty. Can you tell us what happened there, Casey? We only know this by conversations with a particular juror, May Puckett, who provided us information about the general process that occurred during deliberations. And through Ms. Puckett, we know that during the guilt phase deliberations that there were several jurors initially who believed that Rocky was not guilty of the offense. And they struggled with this issue back and forth in the jury room and ultimately came to what I think a lot of people see as a little bizarre, but a compromise verdict in which the people who initially felt that Rocky was not guilty agreed to vote for guilt if other jurors would agree to recommend a life without parole sentence over the death penalty. And that's what happened. They came back with a guilty verdict over almost eight hours of deliberation. And then in the penalty phase, I think they were back there for about 20, 30 minutes and came back with a nine to three recommendation for life without parole. But that recommendation was not followed by the judge. Correct. The judge actually ruled that he felt like the jury's life recommendation came from too much emotion on the part of the jury, and he felt that death was the more appropriate sentence. Well, Sarah, if we can turn back to you, because I believe it was you who actually spoke with a lot of these jurors. How did they describe their experience both on the jury and then reconciling the, quote, deal that they had made with the judge's eventual decision? We spoke with a handful of the jury members, and of course, Casey just talked about what May Puckett had told us about. There was some other conversations that we had with jurors where they felt like because of the sitting through the trial, sitting through the penalty phase, and then recommending life without parole, and then having that overturned, it was too much of a emotional traumatic event for them to sit down and talk about their experience. We also had heard from a couple of other jury members that there was a long time in the jury room trying to determine guilt or innocence. Some of them were not comfortable talking about what the actual vote was between them initially about the guilt or innocence phase. And then we actually did have an interview with one of the juror members who used a terrible word to describe Rocky, used the N-word, and called him a thug. So her belief the whole time through that was, well, whatever. He was a that word and a thug, so we just convicted him. One of the most common reactions to the judge's decision to override the jury's recommendation is, I didn't know he could do that. And I guess the answer is that's no longer okay to do. But can you tell us how that was even possible in the first place? In Alabama, prior to really last year, there was a process called judicial override. 
uh, is not something that you see in other states. I think Delaware, Florida, and Alabama were the only states that had this process, which allowed the jury to make a recommendation, and the judge could choose to follow that recommendation or set it aside and input his own decision. And it operated slightly differently in Florida and Delaware than it did in Alabama, but the overall process was the same. In 2016, the United States Supreme Court found Florida's process to be unconstitutional. Post the Hearst decision out of the United States Supreme Court, Alabama courts were not really making any decisions to do away with judicial override or to overturn cases because of judicial override. But the Alabama legislature stepped forward and changed the law to do away with the process of judicial override. In fact, it was the first piece of legislation signed by Governor Ivey when she came into office was uh, to do away with judicial override. Unfortunately, They specifically made the law not retroactive, which leaves Rocky and other people like him who are only on death row due to the process of judicial override exactly where they are on death row. Well, that brings me to the next question, which is where does Rocky's case stand at the moment? What are his prospects? Unfortunately, the only prospect available for Rocky at this point, because his appeals are finished, is clemency, which in Alabama, the person who determines clemency is the governor. And Sarah, I know that you've been in touch with Rocky probably the most. How is he doing? I would say that he has learned how to manage well on the row because of his personality and because of his work ethic. He is able to get along with everybody Literally, there's officers that, as we're leaving after a visit with Rocky, will say, oh, I love that Rocky. He's my favorite. He has worked for years on the row, and in doing so, he's actually made the lives easier for the officers because he has an ability to really bring people together. And he can tell some of the inmates, like, don't bother so-and-so today. He's having a rough day, you know, so he's good about all of that. I think that I would say at this point for Rocky, he is a little bit surprised about the interest that people seem to be having now about his case and what's happened to him. And although it's been a huge relief to him to finally have people listening and hearing what's went wrong for him, At the same time, it's brought up a lot of emotional things for him, you know, having to think about his life in New Jersey before he came to Alabama. He's always blamed himself for this conviction, even though he's innocent, because of his addiction. And so he's beat up on himself quite a bit. So at this point, some of that's coming back up in him since we're talking more about it again. And it's hard. I mean, he's scared, you know, but at the same time, he has a a faith and he continues to work hard on himself. And he's involved in his kid's life, which is fantastic. He recently had a visit with 
three of his four children and several of his grandchildren. And that's been the first time that he's met any of his grandchildren. And he's got the ability to stay focused on that. And he's a huge sports fan. So he watches a lot of sports and keeps up with that, which helps him too. Well, it's quite remarkable how not only how sympathetic a character Rocky uh, turns out to be, but also the number and the depth of the dysfunctions that happened during his case. And I wonder, from both of your perspectives, how typical is this case in terms of all of the challenges that Rocky faced in both in his life leading up to the arrest, but also during his trial? You know, it's interesting because... Like, I've been doing this work for 15 years, and Casey pretty close to that herself. And because of the attention that this case and has gotten, like, since the, you know, ACLU did the article in The Nation and such, we've talked to a handful of different journalists and such. And one of the things that I've noticed is just, like, how appalling it is to people and just can't believe that this happens. And they'll literally ask me and Casey, like, how do you deal with this? How do you manage, like, all this situation with Rocky's case? And it hit me the other day because the fact of the matter is this is situations in almost all of our cases. There's so many things that happen that we find unjust, unfair, mean, (laughs) and ridiculous. Rocky has... Obviously, you know, several issues that are related to his case, but the intellectual disability, we have several clients with that, that we've not won any relief on for them. As far as attorney abandonment, we've had several cases where attorneys have abandoned cases. We have several judicial override cases. We have a lot of things like this that go on for our cases. It seems in some ways like a perfect storm. Casey, can you comment on how this case compares to some of the other cases that you've worked on in your career? Some people have asked, is there anything that stands out about Rocky's case? Why are you pushing his case? And I think it does go back to the fact that so many of these things are in one case. Mm -hmm. You know, there are race issues. There are trial counsel issues, appellate counsel issues, where he's not been allowed to pursue his federal appeals because of those things. And then you throw into the mix the fact that he was not the person originally charged with this case. There was another person where people, eyewitnesses, not to the murder, but to transactions that transpired later, They testified that it was another person that traded this VCR for drugs. And that's the VCR that was stolen from Ludie Mae's home and later taken to the police with the explanation that it was traded for drugs on the night of the murder. And later they came back following what I believe was some police pressure and changed that testimony to reflect that it was Rocky. Then we know that there was a, a person who in post-conviction, came back and admitted that he lied on the stand. And one person changed their testimony two or three times before they got to trial. So I do think that Rocky's case is unique in that so many of these problems are in one case. 
But each of these problems are found in so many cases, not just in Alabama, across the country. Well, I I wanted to come back to something Sarah said where she was talking about how hard this work is on the lawyers and the investigators involved. And I'm wondering what has drawn you to this work and why do you continue to do such difficult work? This is work that I've always been interested in doing. My mother would say that I am always a supporter of the underdog. Um, And and I think to some extent that's true. Uh, I think defense attorneys can often sound very cynical about things, but I really think that people forget that we're really just eternal optimists, always thinking that something is going to eventually work out. So I've always wanted to do this, but in particular, I think the thing that keeps me going are the relationships with clients, but also in doing this work, we don't have a lot of victories. And so we've kind of redefined what victories are. You know, so a victory in one case may be reuniting a client with family members that they've lost contact with. It may be simply helping a client deal with a loss in a family. So there's so many things that we get to work on that are victories in a sense. And I think those are the things that keep us moving along, even in the face of having clients executed or, you know, losing cases when we absolutely felt like we should win. And keeping that moving is, I think, what keeps us doing this work over and over again. So for me, what keeps me going in this work is that um, as a clinical social worker and someone who came into this work, I've always been a person who was drawn to wanting to fight for people who are marginalized, oppressed, discriminated against. And I came into this work with not much legal background at all. And I definitely knew that our criminal justice system had some flaws, but Once I started in this work, I really was surprised and shocked at how badly flawed the system is and how hard it is to really, like, win anything. I I love what Casey said about we've redefined what a win looks like because the truth of the matter is when I was working on Rocky's case, one of the first cases I started on, I had been trying to find documents to prove about his intellectual disability pre-18. So we were trying to get school records for him and went to the Orange County school system several times. They told me there were no records. Literally gave us a document that stated that after a thorough and absolute search of all records, there was nothing for Rocky Myers. I happened to get a bit of a relationship with some of the office workers there. And they ended up telling me that there was a place where they had just like thrown old filing cabinets and a storehouse. And those two women met me on a their day off on the weekend to go through these filing cabinets. And one of those women found Rocky school records. And it showed that it, back then the term was... Um, mental retardation, so it showed that he was in MR classes. She was jumping for joy. They were crying. We were so excited because it's like, here's the proof. 
And there's a Supreme Court decision that says you can't execute someone who is intellectually disabled. So we thought we had a win. And I was floored to learn that we weren't going to win Rocky's case on that. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. So something's not right. And that pushed me to want to work harder and harder. But I would also say that definitely relationships with clients are what really keep me going here too, because we get close with our clients. We get very close with their family members. We get close with witnesses. In one of our cases, Casey and I, it's a different case, but we're close with the woman who was the victim in the case who died. We got close with her daughter. And it was just amazing to work with her and have a relationship with her because of her forgiveness for our client. So it's those kind of things that just keep us going. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that when we have clients who are executed, it's a terrible feeling. But at the same time, there's something in my heart and soul that feels so good to be with somebody and be with their family at the worst thing that's ever happened to them and to let them know that they matter. And we're not going to stop fighting for them. That's what keeps me going. Well, those are really amazing stories of your strength and perseverance and resilience in the face of this amazingly challenging work. And you talked about the wins and losses and the need to redefine wins. And I'm wondering if you can just take a step back a bit over the course of your, you said, about 15 years working on these issues Do you have more optimism now than you did going in or less? What are the sort of general trend lines in terms of capital punishment, maybe broadly in the U.S. and then within Alabama? We've seen some positive moves in terms of the elimination of judicial override and Washington State Supreme Court struck down the death penalty. But at the same time, your clients and others continue to be put to death. So can you help us understand where the general country is moving, both in terms of public opinion and in terms of the law on capital punishment? So I would say that across the country, there's no doubt that we are seeing that there are less convictions for people being sentenced to death. So the trend is definitely moving away from that high rate of convictions. As far as my personal experience with it, When I first started doing this work, if I was talking about what I do for a living, you know, what my job is, people just definitely here in Alabama, but even across the country and such, the reaction typically was kind of like looking at me like, what? You work for who? Why are you working with somebody, people on death row? I mean, they keep them around forever. So... That was the reaction, but I can say I think that, thankfully, there is a lot that's happened in 15 years where people are looking at things about how systemic racism relates to our criminal justice system and the rates of people of color being incarcerated. All of that has brought people to be more interested in trying to understand and to speak out against things like that. And so I do find at times now when I do say what I do and who I work for, people say, good for you. That's great. So 
For me, it's been a change, I think, definitely in the statistics across the country, but certainly in my own personal experience. Well, that's really helpful. I'm glad that you're getting some of the recognition that you deserve. And Casey, what's your impression of the general trend lines? I think that overall, you're seeing states raising the issue of whether or not to keep the death penalty. We see Oklahoma doing a a year-plus-long study about the death penalty. And I think we're seeing overall on both sides of the political aisle people concerned about what's happening in the criminal justice system. In federal cases, we're seeing a push to reduce sentences. I think that in the legislatures and in the courtrooms even, we are seeing more positive changes. But that's only for some people. Again, there are people that are left behind in each one of those situations. Is there anything that you can suggest that our listeners can do on behalf of Rocky or other people who are on death row? I think educating themselves about what's going on. In Rocky's case, there's a petition online that the ACLU has started for Rocky. Signing that petition is one way to help him. I think as many people as we can get to send out a message that what happened in Rocky's case isn't right and hoping that maybe that will persuade Governor Ivey to grant him clemency. Um, Maybe by the actions that we take in his clemency pursuit, other people could be helped. Maybe because we educate the right person, maybe because the right person hears about it and is moved to do something, like writing to their legislators, becoming actively involved in local elections, DA's races, all those kind of things. And so that's why Sarah and I have talked to anybody that will listen to us um, about his case. Well, I just want to add my words of thanks to both you, Casey, and Sarah, for all of your extraordinary work on behalf of of this client, but also all of your other clients. And also, if you would please pass along our thanks to Rocky for sharing his story with us. And it appears the ball is now in Governor Ivy's court. But thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and tweet at ACLU with feedback. Also, please sign Rocky Myers' clemency petition at www.aclu.org slash Rocky. Till next week, peace.